I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. During this interview, we had the sound cut in and out a little bit. However, you really don't miss any of the information, so don't freak out. We're aware of it, and it'll be fixed uh, as soon as possible. Dr. Paul Offit is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor of vaccinology and pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. He's written tons of published peer-reviewed papers and received countless awards for his work. His latest book, Bad Faith, is all about how religious belief can undermine modern medicine— And I should point out that as we talk, California passed a law making vaccinations all but mandatory. Uh, Medical exemptions are okay, but if your kid doesn't get them, they can't attend a public school. And also Jim Carrey recently went on a Twitter rant about vaccines and a lady actually died of measles. So there's no one we would rather talk to right now than uh, Dr. Offit, who knows so much about vaccines. So, Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm not sure I know as much as Jim Carrey, but I'm trying. (laughs) I know, I know. That is the second opinion everyone gets. Jim Carrey's people wouldn't respond to us, so I guess we'll have to talk to you tonight. (laughs) Yeah, somebody stop him, right? Uh, So, first question, why are we talking to you? Like, why do people still not understand the efficacy of vaccines? I think people don't feel compelled to get vaccines because they're not compelled by the diseases. They're just not scared of the diseases. If you, Southern California is a perfect example. You know, there were elementary schools in Santa Monica and Marina del Rey. I mean, in, in you know, in that area, in the, the the Beverly Hills area, that had you know immunization rates approaching fifty percent because those parents weren't scared of the disease. Now, what happened was when the Disney outbreak occurred and you know, it involved roughly one hundred and eighty children now in twenty one states, then immunization rates in Southern California dramatically increased. You saw these basically anti-vaccine doctors like Bob Sears or Jay Gordon, as they said, gave, you know, sort of more measles-containing vaccine than ever they ever had before because now people were scared of the disease. It, it's, it's a shame that it has to come to that, but it's invariably true that, you know, it's children that suffer our ignorance. So I I can understand how, like, wealthy actors who don't really know anything about medicine could say, like, oh, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid. Obviously, I think it's a terrible idea, but I guess I get where they're coming from to some extent. But, like, where does a doctor get that kind of information? I think young doctors, too, haven't seen these diseases. They, they didn't grow up with them either. So, and some doctors will sort of take an advocacy position for their parents. They, you know, they sort of take on the, the, the concerns of the parents as well. They don't see these diseases, they're not compelled mm-hmm. by them either. I think there are, and I think you see the extreme people like Sears or Jay Gordon, but I think there are many doctors out there, young doctors who don't push vaccines very hard because, you know, they don't, uh, they're not compelled by the diseases either at some level. Sure. And so what do you think it would take to get, um, get immunization rates up to where they need? Obviously you said the measles thing helped, but would it take something awful like polio making a comeback that has lifelong issues for people? Goodness, I hope it doesn't come to that. I mean, it's it, the measles epidemic is interesting, though. Here's what's interesting to me about this. Last year, 2014, there were about 680 cases of measles, okay, roughly. Um, that was the biggest outbreak we've had in, in 20 years. Now, this year, 
outbreak is pretty much over. The CDC a few days ago declared the current Disney-centered measles outbreak over. So that's about 180 cases. It's, it's less than a third of what occurred the previous year. Now, this year, it was all over the media and, and in fact, has led a number of states to try and roll back you know, their philosophical exemptions. Last year, you didn't hear much at all. Why? Because that outbreak occurred in Medina County, Ohio, centered primarily on an Amish group, that, mm. uh, and that accounted for almost 400 of those cases. And, you know, it got very little media attention because people figured, no, that's them, it's insular, it's not us, I don't have to worry about it. Sure. This year is Disney, right? I mean, a shared a commons, a shared space. Mm-hmm. I could go to Disney, therefore it matters. Now, see, I would argue that it should have mattered just as much last year because because those children in the Amish community also suffered. And and so it shouldn't matter whether it's if it's only going to be your children, therefore you're concerned. It really shouldn't come to that. We should care about all of society's children. And I think at some level we don't. Do you think your job has become harder over time because of all this misinformation out there? Because you're someone who advocates for vaccines. Yeah, I, I wish I didn't have my job. I mean, I, I you know, it's we, my, you know, my job. I'm a basic scientist. You probably know that. And so, you know, I spent 25 years working on trying to create um, these strains that ultimately became the bovine human reassortant rotavirus vaccine rotatech. I mean, that's that's what I did. I mean, we started the vaccine education center because we got so frustrated at all the bad information that was out there that we tried to create a source, at least for accurate, up to date, scientifically available information. Um, I wish I didn't have that job. It's amazing to me that that. that that has to happen, that you have to say things like vaccines are safe and effective in an age when in theory we're much smarter about the science than we were 50 years ago. But I think what this tells you is maybe we're not. Sure. So um, I, I understand there are some legitimate reasons for not getting a vaccine. What what are some of those and how rare are they? Right. So if you're if you're obviously if you're if your child is compromised, um, is getting, say, chemotherapy for cancer or getting immune suppressive therapy for chronic diseases or rheumatologic diseases, obviously you're not going to be able to receive live attenuated viral vaccines. If your child is severely allergic to gelatin, which is a a stabilizer in a couple of vaccines, then you shouldn't have to receive those vaccines. Mm -hmm. But that's about it. Uh, You know, in terms of real side effects from vaccines, um, you know, they're they're actually very rare. What what parents are, are afraid of has nothing to do with vaccines. I mean, they're afraid of, you know, autism or attention deficit disorder or multiple sclerosis mm-hmm. or diabetes. That, those aren't consequences of vaccines. So when parents sort of line up in California and they, they angrily say, I don't want to put my child in a position to have to get vaccines that could hurt them, the mm-hmm. things they're scared about aren't consequences of vaccines, which why, is why the choice is a bad one not to get a vaccine. Sure. Um, So a few years ago, I heard a woman uh, speak, and I don't remember her name, speak about herd immunity. And it really... I feel like I, I felt like I learned more in that 20 minute talk than I ever knew about vaccines. Could you quickly summarize what herd immunity is? Right. So herd immunity is you can vaccinate enough people in the population that basically stops the spread of a virus or bacteria. And it, the, the, the level of or the percentage of people that need to be vaccinated varies depending on how contagious the disease is. So for highly contagious diseases like measles or mumps or, or whooping cough, you really need a percentage of the population in the low to mid 90 percent range to stop a virus or bacteria from spreading. For a virus that's somewhat less contagious, like, say, polio, um, we started to see a dramatic decrease in the incidence of that disease when we got to 40 and 50 percent immunization rate. So it really depends. But, you know, and so what's happening is exactly what you would expect to see happening. As, as herd immunity starts to 
erode, it's the most contagious disease that's come come back first. And that's just what's happening. Measles, mumps, whooping cough, exactly what you'd expect. And what do you say to the parents who say, OK, well, everyone else got a vaccine, so I can be in the under 10 percent that doesn't have to get it because, you know, everyone else got it. Because when enough people say that, it's not going to be under 10 percent. Mm-hmm. OK, so and speaking it's such a selfish thing to say, <laughs> like you did it. I'm not. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> Let me. Here's what I want to do. There are a lot of myths that anti-vaxxers kind of throw out there. I want to kind of do a rapid fire thing with you. Let me toss out some of the myths that they perpetuate. And if you could give us kind of a a relatively quick response on uh, how you would respond to this. So the first one, kids get too many vaccines too fast and that can't be good for us. Well, first of all, it's it's if when you're in the womb, you're in a sterile environment. When you enter the birth canal in the world, you're not. And very quickly, you have living on the surface of your body trillions of bacteria, literally trillions. I mean, an, an adult human will have about 100 trillion bacteria on the surface of your body. That's 10 times more than you have cells in your body, to which... You make an immune response to those bacteria. I mean, an adult human will make grams of immunoglobulin every day to make sure that those bacteria don't invade and do do harm. Each single bacterium contains between 2,000 and 6,000 immunological components, okay? If you add up all the... the number of immunological components in the, in 14 vaccines, different vaccines that young children get today, it adds up to about 160 total. I mean, so I'm not hmm. talking about 160,000, 160. It is literally a drop in the ocean of what you encounter and manage every day. I mean, from an immunologist standpoint, the notion that vaccines could overwhelm or weaken or perturb the immune system is fanciful. Hmm. Okay. How about, uh, this is a classic, there's a correlation between vaccines and onset of autism. Yeah, I'm not sure what it's going to take to make that <laughs> one go away. I, you know, it's uh, here's the way I see this. It's perfectly reasonable to ask the question, right? My child was fine. They got a vaccine. And then, you know, weeks later, they started to develop signs and symptoms that ultimately became the diagnosis of autism. Could the vaccine have done it? It's an answerable question. I mean, mm-hmm. this is you're not trying to answer how many angels can dance on the head of a pin here. It's a scientific question that can be answered in a scientific venue and has. I mean, there are now more than 12 studies that show that you're at no greater risk of having autism if you receive the MMR vaccine or if you didn't. You're at no greater risk of, 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 of even if you're the younger sib uh, where the older child has autism and you receive vaccines or you didn't. Um, you're at no greater risk whether you receive thimerosal-containing vaccines. You're at no greater risk whether you received vaccines according to the routine schedule or you delayed vaccines. I, I mean, there have been tens of millions of dollars spent answering this question. I think you can say with confidence that of, of all the possible cause or causes of autism, vaccines are the one that is the best studied and clearly isn't it. What about so it's, uh, hard to, it's hard to unring the bell. That, that's yeah. Yeah. once you put that in people's heads, it's very hard to unring the bell. It's like you know in court when a when a lawyer says something and then they you know the judge says please jury disregard, disregard that statement. You know, it's still in their heads. Mm-hmm. Right. What about uh, vaccines have formaldehyde, and that's a big scary word. <laughs> or it's in yeah, bugs. You know, it's never going to be uh, you know something that. People, you know, or feel warm about because when they hear the word formaldehyde, they think that's used to preserve dead bodies. I mean, the fact of the matter is, ever since we crawled out of ocean onto land, formaldehyde is a, a product of single carbon metabolism. So we all have formaldehyde in our bloodstream, like it or not, and it's at levels roughly ten times greater than anything you're ever going to receive in a vaccine. Formaldehyde is a natural product. I mean, as is mercury, arguably. Mm-hmm. I mean, as is. I mean, we you know we always have this sort of like Jenny McCarthy, Jim Carrey, green our vaccines rally. I mean, vaccines are green. They're made from all natural products. I just think people don't see it that way. 
Okay, so this is one that Bill Maher has perpetuated on his show. He says, we don't need flu shots because the flu isn't a big deal, so let's save vaccines for real problems. Yeah, maybe what he should do is he should leave the studio and come work in a hospital. It would help him get a better perspective on flu. I mean, in 2009, during the, the, uh, that swine flu pandemic, we had five deaths in our hospital from flu, uh, and all in young children, all in children who were otherwise healthy, all in children whose parents had chosen not to vaccinate them. Live through that. I mean, watch a parent go through the seven, eight, nine days it takes for flu to kill their child. Watch that and then get on air and say that. Because right now, he has no concept of that, so he shouldn't say what he says. What about the idea that uh, vaccine, mandatory vaccines infringe on parental rights? So, yeah, so that's the question. I mean, it's, it's, it, is it your right as a parent to allow your child to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection? Is that your right as a parent? Mm-hmm. I mean, is it your right as a parent not to put your child in a car seat because mm-hmm. you feel that that's restrictive? I mean, where, where does, does, does the rights of the, the society or, frankly, the good of the child mm-hmm. outweigh, outweigh an individual choice? I mean, that, that's sort of where I am on this book, Bad Faith. I, I, you know, it's, 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 it's in the writing of this book because this is a, a, friendly, a friendly atheist podcast. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the thing that the, the, these parents take the next step, right? They, they believe that in the name of God, they are choosing to pray instead of give antibiotics for, for you know, for meningitis or mm-hmm. to give insulin for diabetes. I mean, that is, is their choice. That is their choice in the name of their religion to do that. And, and to me, that's where the, 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 it's fine to, I think, respect how parents want to raise their child. I think it's fine to respect how people want to practice their faith. But you get to a point where you cross a line, and that's where that line is crossed. And that's where the state needs to step in and die. When the children are actually harmed, you're saying? Yes. I, I mean, I live in Faith Healing Central. We have two in Philadelphia. We have two big faith healing churches here, Faith Tabernacle Church and First Century Gospel Church. And mm-hmm. in 1991, those two churches formed the epicenter of an epidemic of measles that involved 1,400 children and, and nine children died. I mean, six in those communities, three in outside those communities. And, and they chose prayer instead of oxygen for pneumonia or prayer instead of intravenous fluids for dehydration. And we let it happen. That's why I wrote this book, Bad Faith. I just was so struck by the fact that we, in the name of, of respecting religion, stood back and watched those parents do that. It, it just, uh, it was mind-boggling. For people listening to this who may not be familiar, they just think, oh, religion is all good all the time. Um, what are some examples that maybe the general public is unfamiliar with of certain religions because of their beliefs, overriding good medical sense. So you just brought up like Christian scientists who Mm -hmm. pray instead of go see a doctor, even when their child's life is at stake. What are other examples of that? Right. Well, actually, interestingly, the the, um, the two faith healing churches in our city are neither, or actually, interestingly, are Christian Science. But you're absolutely right. Of the faith healing groups, there's about 25 faith healing groups. Christian Science is certainly the largest, but there are others. I mean, I point out a number of these. I mean, obviously, Jehovah's Witnesses who are not faith healers, but they don't believe, quote unquote, in, in giving life saving blood transfusions to themselves or their children. And you know, I love the Supreme Court verdict in 1944, which I think said it best: while you were at liberty to martyr yourself to your religion, you're not at liberty to. Martyr 
martyr your child to your religion. Mm -hmm. And so and so there's an example where you actually can't do it. Uh, that's gone to the Supreme Court now twice. If a child comes into our hospital and um, is a is a child of a, a Jehovah's Witness uh, a parent and they they need a life saving blood transfusion, we can get a court order to do that in an hour. We make that child a ward of the state. We we save their life and then we give them back to the parents. It, it would you know the faith healers you don't see them in the hospital. They you know they're insular groups. They don't come to the hospital and that's a problem. But it's not just this. I, it, it, the, I talk about sort of the ultra-Orthodox um, Jewish ritual of something called Mitzitza Bepet, which is common. Uh, you know, I, people are always amazed when I tell this story. But, you know, there are tens of thousands of this procedure performed every year, whereby when you do the circumcision, instead yeah. of cleaning off the open wound with, say, sterile... You, you know, the moil, the person who performs the ritual circumcision, sucks off the blood with his mouth, which can introduce herpes simplex virus into the bloodstream and has caused about 17 cases of death or permanent brain damage. It's unconscionable. We see this in our hospital. Very common in Brooklyn, New York. Very common in Lakewood, New Jersey. Very common in Pikesville, Maryland. So you see where there are, you know, large numbers of ultra-Orthodox Jews that practice this. It's, it's common. What's the solution for this? Do we just say uh, there can be no religious exemptions to medical care that for every child, the, the hospital has the ability to become to take that child into custody temporarily. But even that wouldn't well, help the, the Jewish the, Yeah, it wouldn't help the like, Christian scientists they gonna... if they don't come to the hospital. Yeah. But what, what do we do about yeah. that? Ban it. So in Israel, for example, um, because this all goes for, for just focusing on this uh, particular circumcision ritual, in Israel it's not done. In Israel what happens is, is the, the, because this all is based on sort of this 5th century A.D. Babylonian Talmud statement where after the circumcision, quote unquote, we spit blood onto the earth. So what they do there is they use a sterile pipette to suck up the blood. So that still fulfills that Babylonian Talmud statement without putting the child at risk. Ban it. In New York, Mayor Blumberg came close. Bloomberg came close. I think he wanted to ban it. He ended up just, just sort of asking every moil to um, provide educational material that herpes simplex virus infection is a possible consequence and to have the parents sign a consent form. But then the block comes in behind him and says, no, no, we'll just eliminate that to, quote, unquote, maintain trust in the community, i.e., children don't vote. You don't have to do this anymore. But if a moil is found to have transmitted herpes and a child suffers, then that moil can't do it anymore. Always true, right? First child is free. You get to kill one child for free and then no more. And that's the way it happens here. I mean, in Pennsylvania, we're one of 44 states that have religious exemptions to child abuse and neglect laws. So we have the Scheibel case, which was, I think, got a lot of attention. I know Anderson Cooper focused on it. Um, you know, so the first child, two-year-old, Kent Scheibel, has bacterial pneumonia. Parents pray. Child dies. You know, parents are put on probation, still get them to take care of their other child. Then a second child dies. Then they go to jail and their children go to foster care. First child's free. That's the law of the land. You get to kill one. That's so exciting. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> who, who bears more responsibility for I mean, there's the difference between the celebrity misinformation campaigns against vaccines and religious traditions that kill off kids. I mean, I, those are two separate issues. Uh, but let me start with the vaccine part. Who do we blame? Who's to blame for all that misinformation? Do you blame Andrew Wakefield for starting that autism link uh or lie the, the people who paid him to <laughs> the people who paid him for that do you blame the celebrities like jenny mccarthy for spreading it or for people for not doing due diligence in checking this stuff for themselves well i think there, there's a lot of blame to go around i mean first of all, lancet published that paper 
um, that has since been retracted. So technically, we can't talk about it because technically it doesn't exist. The paper has been retracted. But um, that paper was published in The Lancet. That's an excellent medical journal. And frankly, it's the oldest of the general medical journal. The Four of the six people who reviewed that paper argued that it should have been rejected, right? They didn't want to accept it. Under normal com conditions, that paper wouldn't have been accepted. But the editor-in-chief was friends with Andrew Wakefield, and he thought, well, we'll let, you know, we'll let people sort it this out, which is at least naive. Then the paper gets published, and then, you know, it starts a firestorm. The media, you know, it's, it's always the story, right? The one they say this. They say MMR causes autism. I think, mm -hmm. you know, in a better world, obviously, when you make an outrageous claim, it should be backed up by, as Carl Sagan says, right, extraordinary claims should be backed up by extraordinary evidence. This was an extraordinary claim that was backed up by no evidence. And so, but, you know, it took off. And then. You know, so I think the, the I think the journals to blame. I think Andrew Wakefield's to blame. I think that that the media is to blame. I think you know, that obviously this information travels very fast and far. Do, do you realize that that Bill and Melinda Gates, who have been very good about getting vaccines into the developing world, have trouble getting measles-containing vaccine into India, especially in India's middle class, which is large, because of the fear of autism. That's ridiculous. <laughs> who's who's preventing them from getting it to India? Is well, it the, the, those the people there in say? They don't want to take vaccine. I mean, Bill and Melinda Gates will provide that vaccine. And yet, you know, they don't want to take it because of fear of autism. So we export our fear. Or in this case, England exported its fear. That's one of the things that really stuns me, that in some cases, uh, I forgot which state it was just happening in, but when, uh, or maybe it was a different country, uh, when vaccines are free mm -hmm. and they're available and you can get them yeah. and you still don't. That's I mean, shocking. That's and California. I, the, the family that I'm thinking about in my head, maybe it was Canada, I'm not sure. But they said we were misinformed about the harms of vaccines and we would have taken it had we known what the science says. And it's just a matter of getting them proper information. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. we've got proper information coming out of our asses in the U.S., and still <laughs> we can't get people to immunize their kids. I don't know. My yeah, you know, it's just it's a lot of noise. Uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, our vaccine center sort of the constant tries to create educational materials and get it out there. And I think you know, but you're, there's so much noise and media always you know likes the you know the man bites dog story. You know, the the notion that vaccines are safe and effective isn't nearly as interesting as the fact that they may be causing diseases for which we don't have a known cause. I mean, that's a very interesting story, the autism story. It was yeah. it did a lot of harm, but it's an interesting story. You're up against that. So what is the responsibility of the media? I mean, they I think there's this thing of trying to separate signal from the noise, but like the media, the news is trying to get ratings, which I think is problematic. So they want the most flashy story. So what is the like? Is there a solution there in the media? Not that's evident to me. I mean, when when I remember twenty twenty did a story um, years ago. This was probably in the early nineties. Claimed that the hepatitis B vaccine caused multiple sclerosis, caused sudden infant death syndrome, caused rheumatoid arthritis. All wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, there, I met one of the ex a junior executive producer months after that show. Now this was at a time actually when there were two New England Journal of Medicine papers showing that the vaccine specifically didn't cause multiple sclerosis. And I had written and, and called the the uh, producers to try and get them to at least put that story out there because they just put out a false story. And so I ran into this this person and and we you know the conversation got louder and a little more angry and finally just out of complete frustration because i wasn't getting it she said to me look and i quote look our job is to be interesting if it also happens to be true great i don't know yay media what about 
What about the uh, HPV vaccine? I've heard a lot of people push back on that because HPV is is an STD. So it's like, well, my daughter isn't going to be my infant daughter isn't going to be a slut. She won't get it. Like, how do you get through to those people? <laughs> right. That's the father of a 20 year old daughter. Uh, I get this. Um, but, you know, the fact, fact, the fact of the matter is, I think, yeah. <laughs> come to grips with the fact that your daughter at some point is going to have sex. And she may be one of that 1% or less than 1% in the country who, who only has married, whose partner only has sex when they get married to each other and never stray from their marriage. They, they, she may have been one of those people, but I did, wasn't going to play the odds. So she got her HPV vaccine, as did my son. Um, the, it, it's, it's interesting, though. And then, I mean, it's the, I wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times called Let's Not Talk About Sex, because I think that's what it Doctors are just not comfortable sitting in front of an 11 girl and or boy, frankly, and talking about the vaccine because they feel compelled to talk about how the virus is transmitted. I, I don't think you have to do that. It's a, it's a cancer a vaccine, so get it. It is, it is our biggest national embarrassment in vaccines. We have a vaccine that will prevent 25,000 cases of cancer, and now with the new HPV-9 vaccine, 29,000 cases of cancer, and four to 5,000 deaths a year, and only about a third of, of girls get the vaccine, and about a, one-seventh, about 15% boys get the vaccine. That's pathetic. Hey, Paul. It really is pathetic. Paul, I really apologize for saying this, yes. but the HPV answer, we were just getting cut out back and forth. Um, Chris, okay. I don't know if you were getting that, too. Um, is there any way, Paul, that you could say that answer again and we'll splice it back in? But why should, should start from the, from the beginning? If you don't mind, but yeah, I'll, but, yeah. I don't know if there's something going on with the phone or our wires or what, but for some reason this doesn't usually happen. So, um, okay. yeah, why, why should, uh, Jessica can ask the question again. <laughs> okay, wait. I don't remember. It was about eight. Why should <laughs> oh, okay, so, oh, yeah. young girls get HPV vaccines and yeah. stuff? So what about HPV vaccines? Because they're perceived, like HPV is perceived as an STD. So women are like, oh, well, my infant daughter isn't going to grow up to be a slut. So she doesn't need it. So I'm not going to give it to her. Right. But but um, it's fair to say that most daughters, and I'm the father of a 20-year-old, will grow up and at some point have sex. At some level, it's important for the species to survive. So it's, <laughs> it's okay that your daughter has sex. Um, she may be one of those less than 1% of the population that, that, that only has sex with her sex before having, you know, before entering the marriage and that neither person strayed from the marriage. But that's not likely. And so given that it's not likely, you should get an HPV vaccine, which will prevent with a new HPV-9, 29,000 cases of cancer, upwards of 5,000 deaths a year. And and it it is remarkable to me that we don't get that vaccine, give that vaccine, because I think at some level, doctors aren't great at giving it. They aren't. They're, they're uncomfortable sitting in front of an 11 or 12 year old girl or boy and, 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 and talking about this vaccine, because for some reason, and I don't know what that reason is, they feel compelled to talk about how this virus is transmitted. They don't talk about how other diseases are transmitted. You're getting your tetanus vaccine today because it can, you know, you can may step on a rusty nail. They don't say that. They just say today you're supposed to get your tetanus and diphtheria vaccine. But for HPV, they feel compelled to talk about that. I actually wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times a number of months ago called Let's Not Talk About Sex, which actually, if you told me that that was the title I would come up with, you know, when I was a college student, I would have been very disappointed in myself. <laughs> but um, I think that, uh, you know, it's just uh, about about a third of girls get the vaccine as recommended, about one-seventh of boys get it. It is a national embarrassment. Do you it think it really is? It, it's it's we are condemning these. We are condemming roughly a year, 20 to 25 years from from getting a cancer they didn't need to get. 
Do you think a lot of parents aren't getting it specifically because it's kind of saying, oh, your kid might have sex before they get married to that less than 1%? And they just, they want to stay away from that. And that's the only reason. Yeah, no, I think that's it. I think it, it has, it has, it's funny. I mean, when I, when my daughter was in the eighth grade, I went and talked to her school, which was actually an all-girls school, is an all-girls school. And, and and I talked to her class, probably the most harrowing talk I've ever given in my <laughs> life. But then I talked to like the 12th graders and it was all girls. And I said, how many of you are getting the HPV vaccine? And about half raised their hand, which, which in 2006 was remarkable, considering that it was the odds were much less than that. And for the other half, I said, well, why aren't you getting it? They all had the same answer. My father doesn't want me to get it. <laughs> it's amazing. That's... Which, I mean, that's what people who, like, obviously you don't want your kid to have premarital sex or sleep around or what, you don't want your kids to do whatever. But, like, to to think that this is going to stop them, to think that, like, they're like, well, I have the HPV vaccine, so I'm going to have sex. Like, I don't understand Yeah, no kid has ever thought about that before like, having I, sex. I kind of get <laughs> the condom thing. Like, we give them condoms, we give them permission. Like, I don't agree with it, but I see, I can follow that line of logic. The HPV thing is dumb. <laughs> Um, we have one last question for you, which is, uh, this is a personal question. I've read a lot of Richard Dawkins' books, and I remember when he started writing books, they were about really like high-level science, mm-hmm. about the you know intricacies Genealogy. of genes and what they're doing, the selfish gene, things mm-hmm. like that, the extended phenotype. And then when you read his science books now, they're very much at a very basic level. Like, this is how basic evolution works. And hey, you I read feel... that book and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, they're not bad, but it seems like he's kind of dumbed down his audience or like he's writing for a broader, right. dumber base. And I wonder, you know, you mentioned this earlier. You helped create like the rotavirus vaccine. I mean, you were integral to kind of creating these vaccines you've been working in this stuff forever and yet the <laughs> books you're that you're writing now you're herd a, immunity. <laughs> yeah now you're explaining herd immunity and basic vaccine common sense and you're writing a book about like how religious people like override common sense and that should be like level 101 of whatever it is you're talking about yeah. do you ever get frustrated that you're not talking about more detailed higher level scientific ideas no, quite the opposite. I think that um, I have been an NIH-funded scientist for you know a quarter of a century, and I think and who pays who pays me that? Who pays my salary? It's the public. It does. I think mm-hmm. I owe a responsibility to the public to explain what why I do what I do or why we scientists do what we do. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to do it. Uh, you know, I as I say to people, I work for you, and that's the way I see it. I think you owe. You owe people that. Our scientists aren't above anything, and, and we're not very good at it. I think we should try and get better at it, or else, you know, the, the sort of basic anti-science uh, feeling, which I think is more prevalent than ever, um, is going to continue. Well, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.